So on today's Classic Comics Cavalcade, we're going to talk about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, their history, and how they came to be, as well as their creators. And it seems funny to me that most of us know the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but it sounds weird when you say it. We just have kind of forgotten how weird that sounds. Yeah. The Turtles have been around for 35 years. Isn't that crazy? It's the 35th anniversary of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And yet it all flowed from the minds of two individual fans, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, back in 1984. This will be part one of a three-part podcast uh, series. I'm going to start by talking about Eastman and Laird's experiences creating and building the Turtles, and then we'll do a second episode on the growth of the black and white comics boom, and then a third episode on kind of what happened to the Turtles afterwards. Uh, A lot of the material we'll be calling on is a 1997 interview that Eastman did with Gary Groth from the Comics Journal, because it's uh, probably the definitive interview from the time. All right, well, let's go back and figure out where it all started. Eastman grew up in a small town called Groton, uh, Groton, Maine, which is just a little town where there's not much to do aside from hanging out in the sand pits. Um, it's funny, actually, in the interview with Groth, he talks a lot about, like, all they did was hang out in the sand pits. And what you did when you were a kid, you'd ride bikes through there. When you got older, you would go and drink through there. Mm-hmm. And he would spend his uh, money he made delivering newspapers at uh, hanging out in the sand pit. His parents divorced when he was a young kid. Like a lot of kids his age, he gravitated towards comics. Comics were a pretty pervasive thing. He was born in 1963, and at that point, you know, when he was in the mid-70s, a lot of kids collected comics. That's the entertainment back then. Yeah, it really was. And, you know, it was cheap entertainment. He was talking about spending 20 cents per issue for for his favorite comics, and um, it was just fun. So as he says, I, I bought as much as I could afford with my paper route. Um, I would buy comics. I liked weird shit. Well, what? What I called weird shit. Some kids like Superman or Batman and things like that. Close, closest superhero comic I liked and thought, bought repeatedly was Daredevil. I liked weird world tales. I liked Sergeant Rock. I liked the Losers. A lot of war comics. Not much superhero stuff. And I think you see a lot of that in the Turtles because, especially the early issues, they are kind of superheroic. But in the same way, they're also very kind of off. They're very kind of... Yeah. Alternative feeling. It reminds me, you said the losers, and that's definitely what I'm thinking about. Like, they're, they're a little bit on the side. They're not like the main heroes. They're not the main heroes. Yeah. Jack Kirby did a famous run on the losers in, in the mid-70s, uh, which are just amazing comics, by the way. And Eastman was a huge Kirby fan, so he just totally capitalized on that. There's a great image, in fact. Eastman drew of the losers, of his own version of the losers. Mm. And he would draw his own comics, and they would be based on kind of obscure Kirby characters. Um, he says at one point that his favorite character was Commandy, the last boy on Earth. And he says, I would dream of being the last boy on Earth. Nice. That's a weird dream to have. But... Right, but in some ways, like, Commandy's like the ultimate divorced kid's favorite character. Right, right. And when you said the escapism, I totally can relate. I mean, that's what I did 100% with comic books and video games later on but yes he says kirby was brilliant to me i used to just pour over his stuff i still have those comics i bought from that time period and they're just beat to fuck barely held together he was a huge influence and then he uh started drawing more and more comics he uh was involved with a guy who was very in the uh indian small press comic scene of the mid-70s called clay girdis girdis ran a little shop of his own 
where they would produce mini comics, where, which were like, you imagine eight, an eight and a half by 11 page folded in half four times. Whoa, that's a mini comic. It's a mini comic. There was a whole line. There was a thing in the while, especially for a while, especially in the late 70s. Um, Gears was kind of the main guys around it. And Eastman produced about 40 or 50 comics for that line with names like Taint and Comics World. Um, they were just like the, him kind of exploring himself. Wait, did you say Taint? Taint. Taint, yes, indeed. Okay, this is an chart. adult. This is an adult podcast. Yeah, yeah, I and I, okay. I'm fortunately not uh, it, it, acting like an adult, so I apologize. <laughs> I'm like, did you say taint? He had the taint of the taint on it. Yes, uh, um, yeah. So he was deeply involved in all that kind of stuff, and that's where he met his partner Peter Laird. Laird and Eastman met actually while. When, when Eastman was working at a series of restaurants, he worked at a lobster restaurant, for example, in Amherst between or Memorial Day and Labor Day. And in fact, he even continued that after Turtles launched. And they would do work together. Laird was a producer for a comics magazine called Scat, which is an eight and a half by 11 comics magazine. And they lived in, uh, he lived in Northampton, Massachusetts, where, which is really close to where Eastman lived. And they got connected through some friends. Uh, we're not really doing scat anymore, one of his friends said. But, hey, you should meet this guy, Peter Laird, who draws the same kind of weird shit you draw. Kirby-inspired whatever. Babes and guns and fucked-up creatures, all that kind of stuff. And they gave <laughs> me his address. He lived in downtown Northampton. So they got together. And, like, as Eastman says, he had, like, 50,000 comics in his, in his apartment. Toys, shit, and junk. But the first thing I noticed is that he had an unpublished page from The Losers. Whoa. So, okay. Obviously, these guys are, like, best friends immediately. Yep. And way back, like, in 1980 and 81, they were immediately drawing comics together. They moved in together. And even after Laird married his wife, Janine, they would hang out by the hour spending time and doing comics together. Well, that's how it works. I mean, you have friends that get together, you find that commonality, and then when you can create together, that's a really special thing. It was a special thing. Now, Eastman kept drawing all through this period. He worked for a local newspaper. He drew greeting cards. If you look at any old, old TSR Dungeons & Dragons type games, he's got illustrations in those. Oh, really? Yeah. I Um, love those games. Pre-dating Ninja Turtles, which is kind of just a cool little relic. And these guys just hooked up. So Eastman worked at a restaurant, and they drew together every night. They'd get off work. He'd get off work, and they'd hang out and draw. By the fall of 83, they opened Mirage Studios, which is basically the company that ended up publishing the Turtles forever. Wait, is Mirage still around? No, no that's an not old anymore. Thing, right? That's yeah. an old thing, but it's the kind of the studio they created together. Uh. One day, they were hanging out together, watching TV. And I love this story, as, he's, as Eastman tells it. I'm just going to read this from the interview because I just think it's a great story. So um, as he tells the story, we'd done some work on a robot concept, some sort of a misunderstood rogue robot story. He was a big Russ Manning fan also. Russ Manning is a reference to a comic called Magnus Robot Fighter, which is a classic, kind of awesomely weird comic, which is also well worth a long, long podcast just about itself. While we were working on that one night, I did a drawing to make Pete laugh of a turtle standing upright. He had a mask on. He had nunchucks strapped to his arms, and I put this Ninja Turtle logo on the top Hmm. and flung it over to his desk. He laughed, thought it was funny, did a drawing to top my drawing, changed some things, fixed some things. Then I had to top his drawing. So I did four of them, all standing together, with different weapons, and he inked it. And he added Teenage Mutant to the Ninja Turtles part, and we had this one drawing. Literally, the next day we get up and we said, 
At the time, we didn't have any distracting payment work going on. Let's write a story to say how they got to be the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So we did. So the creation of the Turtles, what I'm hearing, was just them trying to one-up each other. They were just hanging out, watching TV one night, trying to one-up each other. Oh, yeah. You know what? It'd be crazier if they're Teenage Mutant. Imagine That's awesome. If, what if there was not just one of them, but four of them? Four turtles. And what if one of them had size instead of a nun, instead of nunchucks? Wouldn't that be cool? That's funny. And then they channeled channel the stuff they were reading at the time. Frank Miller was probably the biggest artist in comics at the time. His work on Daredevil, which introduced Elektra and other, and uh, really made Bullseye a headliner. It was, of course, like some of the great comics that came out of the early 1980s and still considered classics today. And at that time, Miller was doing this controversial series called Ronin. That's right. Uh, which um, is brilliant, and a lot of people don't love it, but I think it's one of the greatest things ever. Um, and so they just kind of did this kind of goofy comic that kind of parodied Miller and Ronin and that whole attitude. If you look at Ninja Turtles number one, the original Ninja Turtles number one, Miller was famous for these long, narrow columns of art, and they did the same thing right. as little parodies of it. And even, I, the, even the cover has Eastman and Lair's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Frank Miller's Ronin was titled Frank, Frank Miller's, Miller's Ronin. Ronin. Yep. It's the first comic that ever had the author's name above the title. Around that same time, I was a huge Frank Miller fan as well, and I did draw as well. Didn't have a good buddy, and we didn't make Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but uh, a lot of my stuff was essentially copying it. Like it was, it was. It's a dark, gritty approach. It's those long panels, and it was just a style that was so infectious and, and new that we just. I just wanted to copy it. I wanted to make it my own. It felt revolutionary, right? It really did. And in an art style, it really did. And what's interesting, when you said Ronin, and I think of early Turtles drawings, mm-hmm. I have that same feeling when I think about it in my head, what they look like. Yeah, because it's got these jagged panels yeah. and this kind of really bold, blocky artwork. And it just feels like vaguely Japanese influence, but not directly Japanese influence. Ronin's directly influenced by Lone Wolf and Cub. Oh, yes. Which is exactly. such a seminal manga. Yeah. But it, it, that was before the manga actually even appeared on American shores. So it was a transcendent thing. So what year is this? Where are we at right now? We year-wise? are at 1984. 1984. And um, to continue Eastman's story, we started working on that. And around February or March, we'd finished 40 pages of a fleshed out story trying to justify why they got to be these mutant turtles. We borrowed some bits from Daredevil's origin and we created the rest. I was getting an income tax return back for $500. Pete had $200 he had cleaned out of his bank account, and my uncle, who used to sell us art supplies during that period, loaned us $1,000 to print 3,000 copies on newsprint for the two-color cover of the first Turtles book. We didn't know anything then. We said, all right, we've got 3,000 comic books in our living room. Some were used as a coffee table. Some were used to put a lamp on the corner. We had enough left over to put an ad in the Comics Buyer's Guide to sell them at $1.50 plus postage. Uh, And then... caught on they sold out the full print run uh, got some distributors involved and by the end they sold all the three thousand copies and there was enough to pray uncle quentin back and they were happy it's my question is that how did the people find out about those comics that was just from the buyer's guide you think? so buyer's guide was a big influential newspaper mm-hmm. that came out every week and contained classified ads and other stuff on comics now, this is one of these things that's kind of lost to the internet because now we're used to we used to you know buying stuff whenever and wherever we feel like it but in those days, particularly for fan publications, that's the one and only way to get a hold of this material right. or even know it existed. It wasn't. It's not like previews, though. It was different. No, it was like a – imagine a tabloid newspaper with articles in the front mm. and ads in the back. It was a hobbyist magazine. Yeah. 
and you'd see ads for you know this month's Marvels and DCs, and in the back there'd be little quarter and eighth page ads for these little small press books, and they just cost whatever the ad budget was for that. It probably to get cost them twenty five dollars or something to take out the ad in right. the day. See now, I might bring this up real quick, and it's just gonna. Uh, hone in on this for a second when we have new artists now obviously there's new artists and new creators all the time it is we talked about this earlier it's it's tricky to get your stuff across in a world full of you know tons of content including podcasts including comic books etc and so we try to find these places that are easy to to get people to see our stuff back then it almost seems like to me potentially easier now hear me out because you have the internet and it's easier to do something like release something and put it up right now in the same day you made it. But it's so convoluted and so full uh, and of creators. Back then, it's just a limited playing field. And I don't know. Am I wrong on that? My take is that it's just as hard now as it ever has been to get attention. And it was just as hard then as it is now to get attention to your work. It was just as hard then, even though they it was a cheap price to put it in the ad budget. And the reason I'd say this is because there was a run of Ninja Turtles in the original series. It lasted about two to three years in which they included work by other indie creators at the time. Pretty prominent indie creators, too. Everyone from Rick Beach, who wrote, wrote some issues of Swamp Thing, to Michael Zuli, who had a great long career in comics, to more obscure guys like Mark Martin. And almost all the work from that period is almost completely forgotten. And almost all that work, from even at the time, just didn't sell especially well. Hmm. And I think no matter what time period you're in, the hype stuff is going to do well, right? I mean, in 84, that's the year that Marvel's Secret Wars came out. That's like took a lot of oxygen out of the room, but occasionally the, there'd be people wandering into stores and finding copies of Ninja Turtles, and yeah. that would that would lift those boats. In the same way that like now, I guess it's a smaller market now, but also a larger market now where you can find theoretically find anything that's in print on Amazon or wherever, but are, are you, are you going to know enough to buy it? I always believe it's the same thing a different day. Different day, yeah. It might be just in like you know rose tinted glasses, or you're looking back at it, it looks a little different, but. It's amazing that they were able to sell out those 3,000 copies. And that's where a lot of this started. And they made a small amount of money. They made a small amount of money from it and got some good attention. To them at the time, It was they were just excited to say, yeah, hooray, we have our own comic. And their parents were kind of apathetic. Um, Kevin went back to working at the, the restaurant over the summer. And they kind of dropped comics for a little bit of time. And then by the end of 1984, they'd gone back and started working on Ninja Turtles number two. Now, it's interesting reading Turtles 2. First of all, they were able to print. Uh, they they were getting enough attention to Turtles number one. They went back to print three times with the book and started oh. really taking off. So suddenly they started making decent money. Instead of making you know, a couple hundred dollars, which is all they had made off the first run, basically all future runs were pure profits. They started making real money. By the time number two went back to print, they sold 15,000 copies. And then a resolicitation of number one sold 30,000. Resolicitation of number two sold between 50 and 55,000. And suddenly they were making between eight and ten thousand dollars a month. This is in 1984. Yeah, that's a lot now. Like double, <laughs> like, the, double that, right? Yeah, double yeah. that is about what you would be making now. Yeah. And suddenly it's like they won the lottery. Yeah. Which is just. Just bizarre to me, right? So think about this for a minute, right? Here's these kids, and basically they're like, the closest equivalent I can think of is someone like LeBron James suddenly going from being a high school athlete to going pro, and he's making a ton of money almost overnight. That's funny. I was going to go with Bill and Ted. 
Bill and Ted. Excellent. Just, just regular excellent dudes. And also, <laughs> they became really, really popular. Excellent And dude. had to save the world. Had to save the world. And they saved the world, right? <laughs> they, they made the world safe for indie comics. Yeah. Or for, the, for, or for Lincoln to party hardy. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good series. It's coming back, by the I way. I love that. Is it going to be as good? Oh, yeah. Is it going to be as I good? Think it is. You think it is? I'm not sure. We're off topic. So one of the cool things, like looking at number two, makes me laugh because there's a great letter here. And I'll talk about who that letter is from in a minute. But he says, to tell the truth, I, this was not at all what I expected. I expected that it would be a heavy-handed satire of the mutant and ninja books. But I was pleasantly surprised that it was more like a gentle nudge at some comic mainstays. I enjoyed the Miller vagueness with, without it being fully Miller swipes. Mm. You you see that, out, and they, they do a beautiful job of doing the uh, artwork, too, which we should t- chat about in a second. So he lo- I, I would love to see more issues of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I wish you the best of luck of it. It's much more enjoyable than most mainstream comics. And that's from a guy named Kevin Dooney. Dooney would end up being a guy who would move up to Northampton, Massachusetts and work for Eastman and Laird for many years. He created this character named Gizmo that would appear in some of the Turtle sidelight issues. And so it's very cool to kind of see everything slowly come together very quickly. Number two also has an ad for T-shirt iron-ons. So even like with issue number two... 1984, before Turtles were Turtles, as we know them, they were selling iron-ons of each of the different guys and of the cover of number one. And, you know, it became such a key part of what made that series what it was. I think that's the beginning of merchandising. And I think that that shows the power of merch and the power of uh, that, how that can, you know, push your brand forward. Because, I mean, if you have other kids wearing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle iron-ons, you're going to ask, What's that? What are those turtles on your I want backpack? See, I want more of that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really huge, though. And it still is, to this day, merch is a massive thing. Is this when Turtles Mania started? It's the beginning of it. Eastman says, I remember I was in my apartment in Portland, and Pete called, flipping out. He was like, do you realize that we'll make about $2,000 each on a 15000 press run after everything's paid? If we did six of these a year, we could get by just doing comics? Wow. What? Now it is Bill and Ted, by the way. Right. <laughs> I think we did three or four issues that year, and it went from 15,000 copies of the first printing of number two to a resolicitation of number one that sold about 30,000 to a resolicitation of two, which was higher than that, to the first solicitation number three, which was 50 to 55,000. It was incredible jumps like that. In the, by the end of 85 into early 86, we were filthy, stinking rich. We were paying our rent. We were putting money in the bank. We were doing well. We were making a crazy amount of money. By issue nine, which is the issue that guest starred Cerebus, which is an interesting uh, small press character, they sold 135,000 copies of that issue. Oh, that Cerebus. I remember Cerebus, and I'm sure that did really well for them. The crossover stuff is huge. So, yeah, there are young kids, and they have essentially made a few comic books. You know, right? If you think about it in the grand scheme of things. And they have enough money to support themselves almost on the books. You wonder if some of it's right place, right time. Or if some of it was expectation, like you said, that letter. He's like, this sounds so crazy. It must be heavy handed and ridiculous. But then it was actually pretty good. And I think some of that comes into play, too. Yeah, what do you think? Like, do you you think it hit the right time? Do you think it was like people just thought this was a funny idea that ended up being 
caught people's eyes? Well, I think it is interesting in the timing because the 80s, crazy, crazy cartoons and comic books were successful. Like when I say crazy, I mean not very good. <laughs> in my humble opinion, there's a lot of like really weird stuff. If you think of the 80s, right? If we made like a, a store dedicated to the 80s, we'd see a lot of weird like Alf. Right. Alf was a thing that like <laughs> how was that even a thing? It did okay, and I liked it a lot. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think that a part of it is the timing. Also, the book and the art style, which we didn't really talk about a lot, is is great. Like I love that art style. It and, just pops on the page, right? And it also, like we said, and he even mentioned in his letter, it still had that Miller esque nod to it. So if if that's in there, that's also part of the timing, isn't it? There's this odd look to it, too. So they use this thing called craft tint paper, which is a paper that you would buy at art stores where you could apply chemicals to it and produce this shading to it, which no one uses now because, mm. of course, you would do that using Photoshop filters. But at the time, you had to actually buy special paper. So this book had a look unlike anything else on the stands. It's kind of saturated noir look. And it was in black and white, so it kind of had this fascinating look. At the same time, like, we're talking freaking turtles, right? And we're talking, like, about these creatures that are just ridiculous. And so it was just, like, this position of this, like, really smart, fun art style with these goofy uh, stories and these kind of semi-serious characters. And, like, it was such a unique thing. It just hit at the right time in the right way. Well, I think you just said the answer, and it might be the answer to a lot of things for creators to hear is that it is not just the right place for your time, but it's also right thing, unique perspective, yeah, unique delivery model. These are many things that have to all come together. So I think that that's really what it is. And that's what makes huge successes. Like even if I think of my favorite bo- uh, band, Nirvana, they had this grungy, weird style that wasn't called grunge because there was no such thing. Yeah. And they just loved old rock and, and some new rock. And they were just doing something because they wanted to. And they felt it. But they were at that perfect time where people wanted that sound and were tired of the really ridiculous pop stuff. And, and, and so there's a timing, but there's also their uniqueness. And I think that's the combination that I see happening here. And then at just the right time, they got involved in sub-pop records. Right. Who ended up pushing them right. and brought them to another level and then signed with the major label, which helped yep. push them even higher. Yep. And that when they were ready for it, they were able to come out with Nevermind, which just shattered everything that yep. came before. And that's like a little bit with Cerebus coming in all of a sudden. They're like, whoa, we all know Cerebus, and now it's the Turtles, and now we really like Right, and then they hooked up with, like you were talking about, an expert in merchandising. So the, the, the genius of the Turtles, in part, is that Eastman and Laird owned all the rights themselves up until, I think, about 15 years ago, at which point they sold them all to Viacom. But they actually owned all the IP on the, on the comic and the characters. So they were able to control who was going to merchandise it, what they were going to make from it, who they were going to work with. And so they had a lot of people approach them as the book became big about kind of merchandising some of the work um in 86 they met a guy named mark friedman and friedman just hit it off with them and they basically said hey mark okay we we think we like you go off and see what you can do with these characters and if this ends up working out we'll give you like a month or two to work to see what we can get otherwise we'll move on to someone else he got lucky enough to uh, kind of connect them to uh, an animation studio and that's huge though the and, animation studio was huge. And here's another thing where it just got really lucky for them. And they persuaded the animation studio to take on this work. The art was done by Toei Studios in Japan, who had actually done the Godzilla movies. And they were able to get to produce five episodes, which ran during Christmas vacation in 1986, <sighs> when kids were home ready to watch That's shows. timing again. And so it's timing of the perfect timing. Yeah. 
And these characters just really grabbed the kids because they sanitized the characters just enough. Right, it wasn't the comic the designs. book. It wasn't, the, and that is a, a strong point. It wasn't not the comic book. No, it wasn't the comic book. So it, it's funny. Like for example, pizza. Right, everyone associates the turtles with pizza. Right, Cowabunga, dude, let's have some pizza and then party. Right, they weren't they weren't pizza eaters. They were yeah. actually beer drinkers. Yeah, they're not in the original there's books. All these, there's all this stuff in the early comics yeah. about them drinking beer. Actually, the first instance of them eating pizza is in that Archie comics version of the Ninja Turtles. Jeez, oh, that says a lot. I bet you in the pizza, in the cartoons, they had, like, pizza and soda, right? Uh-huh. There was no more beer. Oh, yeah, It was all just, like... Of course. Probably Pepsi products. As the story goes, all agreed to soften the turtles for mass consumption. And so Playmates, who was the toy company, underwrote a five-part cartoon miniseries that turned the Renaissance reptiles into pizza-snarfing bad guys. Play, from day one, the Playmates people said, tone down the violence, tone down the characters, get rid of any weirdness... Sanitize it a bit, and that's I think a big part of what captured kids' imaginations too, because then it allowed them to focus on these characters as characters, right? Ralph, the party animal, and all that, and that's a lot of what kids talked about too. Is like, yeah, I just I'm more like Donatello. No, I'm more yeah. like Raphael. I'm yeah. the leader, or whatever. And if they were trying to do that with the original comic books, they wouldn't have had the success because they, they, I, I feel like when I read those books, they felt all very similar. The, the, the distinction wasn't as great. Right. Playmates said, and this is more from the interview, our specific audience is four to eight-year-olds. This is the audience we need to shoot for. The origin story, there was death, murder, and revenge. That was softened considerably. Wait, I have a question for you then real quick. Yeah. What do you think of their, their decision to do that? Are you on board with it? I mean, this question comes up all the time, especially now. You have a brand. You've created something. You've created content. And if you want to get it to the next level, sometimes you have to maybe swallow your pride or do make these changes you don't artistically think you want to do it. Were they cool with like making these pizza dudes and not like their dark, gritty book that they first started? So they were totally cool with that. Peter Laird was the guy who suggested that they all wear different colored masks. In the comic, they all wore the same colored mask. Right. But Laird, who owned 50% of the character, said, Let's give them something to make them look different. So he le- legitimately like took this change and said, yeah, we're going to change this in the way we want. I guess the closest equivalent is like George R.R. R. Martin. There's places where Game of Thrones, the show, varies from the books, but Martin's shepherding it, right? So if he says, I want to follow this different vision now, then what the heck? Why not? Yeah, but were and, they both on board or was it just Laird? Do you think it's... Well, I think I think they both were on board. Okay. I mean, I think as much as anything, it was just a series of accidents that led them to their massive success. Yeah. I'm just wondering if some of it was based on money, too, right? Because they're like, well, we could have this gazillion dollars because we're going to make them digestible by 48-year-olds. Yeah, and Eastman says it probably affected Pete more than me to tone down the, the creations. He was really upset about it. And even today, which well, there is you go. 80, 98, he's very much more of a purist than I am. I think he has much more of an attachment to the turtles than I have. I had more in the beginning, but I can't say I do now. It's like they never stop. I never really thought it would go beyond issue one. It'd come out of Heavy Metal magazine, and Richard Corbin stories, and underground stuff where every story could be something different and more fucked up than the last one, or more interesting or whatever. I had a lot of other stuff in my mind I wanted to do comics-wise. To me, it felt like any day the whole thing could just fall apart, and then, boom, you're on to something else. So I think that's part of it, too. He's like, I'm going to keep writing this as long as I possibly can. Right, because something else will happen, and you'll go to a different project. Now, this is 1987. We're still in 1987, I think. Do we know when um, the RPG, the tabletop game, 
Or the rope, the role playing game. The Palladium game was actually before that. That was eighty five and eighty six. Oh, was it? We it was missed one of the it very on our first timeline. things that they licensed. Okay. Um, there, there's some interesting stuff online about, and I'll put it in the uh, show notes about where you can find information on the game. I played it. It's really, you did play it. Oh yeah, because it came out like at the same time as like Turtles Number Four. Yeah, I wouldn't have known Turtles Number Four. I think I knew of the Turtles before the books from that tabletop. It's not a tabletop. It was a like a Dungeons and Dragons type game. So oh. Palladium, if you're not familiar, Palladium did a series okay. of role-playing games. So they were like D&D, and they had ones on ninjas. They had uh, one that was a kind of a combination of all the hero types in one game. And one of these Palladium games was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, wow. And we are like, wow, this, this looks crazy. We're like, Ninja Turtles? Yeah. I, I remember thinking that's the craziest thing. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, we should play this game. So that's another way to, that a lot of people, including myself, got into it. It doesn't make any sense, right? Mm-mm. And in the end, like you come, keep coming back to that. It, back in the day, right? People would say this just just is so weird. Doesn't make any sense. And that's kind of what maybe maybe that's it too. Like as a young kid, you love these things. They're just weird. Weird, yeah. And I think that unfortunately, without going into too much of a tangent, as you grow up and as you become in quotes more adult, you forget some of that wonderment and wanting to get a little weird and i think that we should all have a little bit of that still inside us and so i did the podcast a few weeks ago with kurt mitchell who wrote american comic chronicles in the 1940s and he was talking about superman and when superman first came out in 1938 people perceived him as this odd character like who would ever think of this circus circus guy is the thing like he's like a samson from a circus lifting heavy weights who could he couldn't even fly that he'd just jump right and it was like who would come up with this 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 just seems so strange right right? right. and then by 1939 1940 there were superman cartoons the superman radio show when you know everyone listened to the radio at the time and they quickly became this normal thing and so now, of course, Superman's as all-American as Popeye or Doc Savage or the guys from Friends or whatever, right? It's iconic. Yeah. But at the time, it was just bizarre. And I think the Turtles have kind of gone to that same phase now yeah. where they're just – they're part of the landscape just like G.I. Joe or anything else. They're just a thing. And I also think that I'm wondering if some of it's the kind of innocence of the time. Yeah. Because if I made like Samurai Crab right now, I don't think anybody would care. No. They'd be like, yeah, okay, I get it. It's a crab and it's a samurai, but it's not that big of a deal. And I think in that way, like your question before about like the uniqueness of the time and would this break through nowadays, I don't think it would because right. there's so much that's different. This was a high-quality book, but the hook was the, the weirdness of the title and stuff. Mm-hmm. What breaks through nowadays is like quality more than anything. Or really, really weird. Or really, like, really weird. Yeah, more intense. But you yeah. think about like the biggest things, the things that people love the most. What are your friends buzzing about the most? It's either like everyone's talking about the final season of Game of Thrones because it's weird and cool and intense and different. But also in the comics world, people are talking about books like Monstrous, which is just a gorgeous book. Or a year or two ago, everyone was talking about Saga because it's just such a beautifully done. Oh, I love Saga. Yeah. Everyone says that, right? And but I like perfect a, comic. I, not to go, we should, we'll get back to the shows in yeah. two seconds. But not to go off on a tangent, but Saga I like because it is weird, actually. Because it does tell the story that I didn't think I would want to know about and it takes place across many different places you know and lands and stuff so i think that's i think that succeeds because of its it's kind of weirdness it's so heartfelt though too i mean that it is true yeah at the heart of the book is the couple and the baby yeah. we're going off on the tangent back to the turtles we're so, in 19 uh, i wanted to mention that marvel actually took an interest in the turtles very early on mm. 
And it would have been possible for them to become a Marvel property like by the mid 80s. Eastman says the Turtles could have taken a wrong term if we'd been less savvy. There was a time early on, Peter David and Archie Goodwin took a meeting with Peter and I to discuss, to talk about bringing the Turtles in-house to Marvel. David at the time was the direct sales manager, I believe. And Archie Goodwin was an editor at Marvel. Both of, both did different things over the years. And he says, which you know, there's a boyhood fantasy of living inside us like, Marvel, wow! Even we knew fucking better. We still went down to that meeting. They said, well, you know, we'll put it in our epic line. Really glossy covers, full color, very slick. We'll give you all... We'll give you an editor, and of course, we'll want 50% of profits oh, in the merchandising. Is. We were just like, fuck that. But the offer had happened really early on. It's entirely possible the Turtles could have been another big profit center for Marvel to make millions and millions of dollars. Or perhaps they would have fucked that up too. Who knows? Now, they, they said yes to the, uh, the Playmate thing and the toys and the cartoon, but that was because they still owned all the rights? They still owned all the rights. And here's where it gets complicated. So... They very quickly brought their friends in, too, to create characters in the Ninja Turtles universe, as you would, right? Right. And they're very quickly making good friends. So, for example, there's a cartoonist named Stan Sakai. He's one of the best cartoons of his generation. He did a strip called Usagi Yojimbo, which is about a... Oh, yes, I've read a, that. Ronin uh, Bunny or something. Ronin Bunny, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a perfect character to fit in with the Ninja Turtles. And so that character was licensed. It appeared in the cartoons. They did an action figure for it. And they gave him a cut in all the merchandising of his character. Because they could, because they still had it. Basically, 50% of, his, of, of the entire company profit from mm. it went to Sakai, I think is the story. And this very quickly became kind of a problem for them. Because they had many people creating many characters as part of this intermixed universe. And it became untenable in some ways for them to manage everyone's unique permissions and rights to these characters right, right, right. so the, it, it their lives very quickly became really complicated so first of all eastman says there was a point where they were grossing 50 million dollars a year each what from these characters wow and that's They've, still in the 80s it's still in the 80s yeah which is just just insanity right and it's just an insane amount of money and in fact like if you this is where the analogy of the lebron james comes in um imagine having that kind of money coming in but at the same time they discovered they they had no time to work on the book themselves. Mm. Very quickly, I think by issue 18, they realized they had no time to do any creative work. So they started farming all of it out to people. And Eastman talks about sitting in meetings from dawn to dusk, basically, with lawyers and merchandisers and mm. uh, just going through all the different ways that they can make money off these characters. And when you're talking about licensing characters for everything from video games to baby shoes... Um, it just gets ridiculously complicated. It's just really a product quickly. at that point. It's not like the creative art form anymore. Right. Yeah. Right. And so th that's exactly right. And so within two years of them basically hitting it big, they're experiencing all the problems of suddenly being millionaires, where they had, as he estimates, between ten and twenty people filing with active suits against them at any given time. Whoa. They, he says some people would say, "I had a dream about creating Ninja Turtles, and so uh, you know, you owe me money." I wish I could say that. For there, was a, there was a show well before my time that my parents watched called Howdy Doody. Yeah. And there's a character in Howdy Doody that's a cowabunga. And the guy who created Howdy Doody is like, cowabunga's my word. You can't use it without paying me rights. Oh, my goodness. And so like, they spent hours and days just talking to their lawyers about these freaking lawsuits. I was going to ask you, as one of my final questions, how did it end up for them? Did they do well and are they still making things? I think I know the answer to those first two. 
uh, they did well mon- monetarily, but it seems like they got uh, burned out by the, the situation that they had created. Yeah, I think the best quote on that is from another cartoonist named Steve Bissett, quoted in this interview, saying, The business interviews that come in and oversee most publishing entities is the nature of the beast that they are driven to push the creative individuals to the periphery of the publishing company. As these business interests insinuated them into Mirage, they began to seize more and more control of the company. These business interests were given more and more control by Peter and Kevin. Meanwhile, the guys who were actually doing the nuts and bolts work were being pushed further and further to the periphery. This started crippling the friendship between all these people, crippling the friendship between these guys and Peter and Kevin. The genuine ethics and issues became lost, got lost between the chaotic and overexpanding business demands. And it just got insane for them. I yeah. mean, if you can imagine, like, basically, what do you do if all of a sudden you're making millions of dollars? It's the same thing with a dot-com, I think, these days, or, you know, any startup. What happens when suddenly the money is flowing in and you, your company is not the company you imagined it to be? How do you deal with that growth? And uh, I will talk about this in a future episode. Eastman created a company called Tundra Comics, which was meant to be a place for some friends and other great creators to do work kind of unfettered by editorial demands. Mm. The story of Tundra is one of the great untold stories of the 1990s or maybe forgotten stories of the 1990s. Um, What happened to them is just an incredible cautionary tale. Before that, though, the Turtles also inspired this massive boom and then bust in black and white comics. So as you can imagine, after Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comes out and sells through the roof, um, many, many other people say, oh, I can create a comic like that and yeah. do something just as cool. So there was adolescent Black Bolt koalas and there was... Uh, was there a samurai crab? It should, <laughs> should have been a samurai crab. There was, the, there was a Zatoichi walrus. Goodness. Miami Mice at the time. Miami. I Mice remember Miami Mice, actually. Uh, there was a Kangaroos book, Kung Fu Kangaroos, Geriatric Gangrene Hamsters. No, that was not a thing. That was a thing. So there was there was literally dozens, if not hundreds, of black and white ripoff comics. In fact, Eastman and Laird, one of their earlier licensing bits was licensing a Ninja Turtles training book to a wow. fly-by-night company called Salson Comics. Um, so I think the next episode we do on the tur- the turtles and their impact should be on that black and white bust because there's yeah, so that much very there. Interesting. And I think that uh, here's a, an interesting way to close this chapter. Um, you we started the story with two kids just trying to have fun and create things, and the whole goal for even me and you and anybody who creates is to not just in quote to make it big, but get your stuff out there so a bunch of people can check it out. They did that, they accomplished it, but isn't it ironic? That in what they did and what their goals were, it ended up kind of just killing it or like changing it to the point where it didn't even recognize it. So many people have fond memories of the Ninja Turtles, though. They're so, right. so much a part of our landscape. They're as iconic as any other character that's been created over the last 25, No, the books years, are right? still in my mind. The cartoons are still in my mind. It's just it's like they didn't, they, you know, they had a beginning, a rise, yeah. and then a, a kind of interesting... Not end, but a different... Yeah, and when we talk about Tundra, it is a fall. It is a fall. Okay, it is it's a, a fall. It's a fascinating man. fall. Well, we'll get to that next chapter. Jason, thanks so much for this illumination. Thanks for joining me, Carlos. It's been fun. And I'm uh, hoping to be back for next chapter. Oh. 
Oh, thank you.